Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. I am so lucky to have this amazing person today with me, my guest, Jason Fala. Uh, Jason, I met him like probably like a little bit, probably previous to the pandemic uh, beginning, but uh, he's an amazing guy. Uh, he is currently the director of Redback One. He's one of the owners. He is um, in charge of the combat training system of the company. He's a veteran of the Australian Army Special Forces, 12 years, six years in the Special Air Service Regiment, was in, uh, was in Australia's Tier 1 Counterterrorism and Special Missions Unit, and conducted operations in East Timor, Afghanistan, and Iraq. I know I probably forgot any other any other good bits, for, uh, tidbits for me, Jason. Well, Martin, thanks, first of all, for having me on the show. Um, it's good to see you again. Uh, look, I'm sure we can cover down on some of the stuff that you may have missed during the intro, but uh, yeah, feel free to, to go ahead and ask the questions and we'll, we'll, we'll cover it, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll get to it for sure. And, and thanks again for so much for being on here. I know you're a really extremely busy person. You're doing a million things. So, and I appreciate your wife allowing you to be on here because I'm sure you have other obligations as well. Um, so I want to ask you, where were you born and raised? So born in Australia, uh, in a small country town in the state of Victoria, um, in a place called Kyabram. And a uh, pretty small town, um, you know, going back several, you know, decades and even hundreds of years, it was uh, probably a mining town or something similar to that, real small settlement. But my family grew up in uh, country Victoria. That's where my extended family uh, were living and that's where my mum ended up being. Um, and so, yeah, born in Kyabram, small country town. And do you have any brothers and sisters? I do. I have one brother and I have three half sisters. Um, but yeah, one, one, uh, blood brother. So you you're a pretty big family and were you pretty close to your parents and what was your childhood like when you're growing up? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, my mom, my mom was, uh, one of eight children. And uh, her parents, uh, my grandfather served in World War II. Um, and so she grew up, you know, post World War II in country Victoria, um, where, you know, there was a lot of struggles back then, you know, especially having eight kids um, through the depression years and then through into her childhood, you know, that, the whole family sort of, you know, struggled quite a bit. When I was, uh, when I was born, my father, my father was actually, he'd, he'd served in Vietnam um, my brother was born in Singapore, uh, as a result of their, and my mum's and, and dad's engagement in, in Vietnam. Um, and then in 72, when I was born, uh, in country Victoria, you know, um, we've got a, a big extended family, uh, out that way, but, uh, soon enough, I ended up finding my way to the city, um, when my folks split up when I was quite young and my mum moved away down to uh melbourne in victoria which is the main or major city the, the certainly the largest city there um and that's where i pretty much stayed so i grew up um went to a public school initially and then to a private boys school and uh and then pretty much went from there into the military so what was your childhood like growing up like who were your role models when you're growing up i mean i, I want i always like to find out how you became the evolution of Jason. <laughs> I think um, sports had a lot to do uh, with me growing up. You know, I was sometimes less of an academic and more of a, a like a sports performer. Uh, and then in some degrees, some, you know, performing arts, you know, I excelled in theater and, and whatnot uh, in, in, in that side as well. And so I guess as a, as a, a young kid and, and teenager, sometimes I was torn to want to play professional sports or go into theater and become an actor or something similar. Um, but my parents were avid football fans, Australian rules football, and I grew up playing football at a really young age. Um, and so I think a lot of you know, people that I looked up to were from those sort of sporting uh, teams, you know, certainly playing football in the winter playing cricket in the summer and then, you know, just due to the extracurricular sports and, and opportunities that we had at the school that I went to, there was tennis, there was swimming, there was athletics, um, you know, almost all kinds of sports. And so, you know, it was a, a really good opportunity to be able to, you know, play all of those different sports, but I really excelled in football and cricket. 
Um, I was selected at a really young age, about 14 or 15, to be selected to play professional football and join the youth team to become a pro footballer, um, which was really exciting. Uh, and I, I spent a little bit of time there uh, in that youth team before coming back the next year uh, for another crack at it. And then I ended up going to a different path and um, I ended up wanting to join the military of all things. So the school that I went to had a cadet unit um, and, you know, being a young kid in a private school, you know, being a cadet was, was very interesting to me. Um, I had some friends who really were interested in, in the military. My dad was in the army. He went to war. My grandfather was in World War II in the Navy. So I feel like it was probably in my blood. And so, you know, I'm not sure whether I passed up a really good opportunity to play professional sports to join the army, but I felt like that was a calling to me. Um, so a lot of, you know, my role models, I guess, in some way, shape or form were often my family members. And even if I didn't know them that well, I think it was just in our blood to, to serve and to serve our country. Um, but yeah, certainly growing up as a, as a kid, certainly the, from the sports side, um, playing football and cricket, I feel like that helped me a lot through things like my selection into special forces, you know, being a, you know, it's a very, football is a very tough sport, obviously requires you to be very fit, have a lot of teamwork and integrity and all the things that you would, you know, associate with military service, you'll oftentimes find in those high level team, team sports. And what was your relationship like with your uh, mother and father when you were growing up? Were you pretty close? Yeah, my, my mum was not exactly a helicopter parent. Um, she gave us a lot of freedom. Um, my mum worked as uh, an administrator in uh, an institution for uh, intellectually disabled, uh, both kids all the way through to geriatric adults. Um, my stepfather also worked in a similar field at a different institution and there was, you know, opportunities for me to move into that field as well at a young age. They worked 12 hour shifts, two days on, two days off. Um, so we were kind of, you know, at that point, you know, making sure we're able to get ourselves up, get ourselves dressed, get ourselves off to school, come back from school, you know, do our homework and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then, you know, there was always that next couple of days and then the weekends that, you know, we'd spend with the family. We'd often go to, uh, you know, vacations at the end of the year where we grow up uh, water skiing and, uh, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, we were, we were pretty close. But, um, you know, at the same time, we spent a long time apart as well. And so what made you, after you got out of high school, what made you decide to, to go to the Army? And why did you choose that branch as opposed to other? What was that like for you, that decision process? It's, it's a good question. You know, um, I didn't know my dad um very well at all he left when i was quite young um and i I'd, I'd known of his service within the australian defense force and the army and that he you know spent time overseas in vietnam but i was never able to you know based on you know him being separated from us and and whatnot you know there was not an opportunity to to try and pick his brain on any of that kind of stuff so i'm not sure what really led to me wanting to join the army. And I feel like it was probably just in my blood. Like it's one of those things where it's a calling. You're just kind of called to that kind of service, I think. Um, my folks, my parents, you know, my stepfather and, and mum were were not gun people by any means. They were certainly anti-gun, never, never had any guns at home. Um, and so I feel like, uh, you know, my desire to want to join the army a very good friend of mine, one of my best friends at the time, um, he was all about special forces and I really didn't even know what special forces was when I was, when I was young, I'm talking about 16, 17 years old. Um, and so when there was an opportunity when, you know, he and I would, would discuss it all the time. Some of the, you know, the classic movies about special forces and, you know, American SEAL teams and stuff like that, you know, became, you know, part of growing up. Uh, in that time period. And so that became, you know, an understanding of, hey, these types of units are out there. And also we have those units in Australia being the Commando Regiment and also SAS. So, uh, yeah, my best friend uh, and, and I decided, you know, one day we're going to join the Army. 
And um, at that point, we were going to do the direct entry course into special forces. And, and so, yeah, so tell me how that works. So did you, do you have to go through basic training first and then you go through a, a do you have to test to go into that brand? So at the time, one, one commando regiment in Australia, um, being a, a predominant army reserve unit, uh, has a full-time cadre of, of, of full-time special forces um, personnel that, that man and staff the unit. And at that time, they were were holding uh, recruiting programs that would bring civilians directly into the unit, and then the unit would also be responsible for running essentially the boot camp. Um, so instead of going to standard infantry, uh, or sorry, uh, initial employment training and boot camp process through the regular regular army, the commando unit would run that whole whole phase and process itself, and then you would graduate from that course. Um, you know, as a military member and, and you, would, you would have undergone initial employment training. From there, you would go through your infantry uh, course to become an infantier, which was also run by commandos, which would then give you, in, in Australia, we have like an MOS that would, that would be, you know, con- consistent with your employment. And as a commando, it was a number 079, um, and that would be your ECN, which would be, you know, the, the job category of commando. So when we graduated or when we were selected to go to commando training induction, at the time that was a 12 month process that you would go through an entire 12 months of training. And at the end of that, if you were successful, you'd be uh, awarded your green beret and become a commando. And then you'd be able to march into one of the rating platoons um, as a member of the commando regiment and, and that particular company. And what was, was getting in at that time? What was that process like for you, Jason? Like, were there any any point where you're going through the training? You're like, oh my god, what did I get myself into? Well, you know, for me, I was like 20 years old, fresh face. You know, barely could even grow a beard, and uh, I must have weighed about I don't know 110, 120 pounds. Um, I was an avid rock climber at the time. I was pretty wiry, tall, strong. Uh, able to bang out, you know, 20 dead hand pull-ups at will. Um, and so for me, it was it was great because guess what? In commandos, you could get paid to go rock climbing. Um, you could be an instructor in rock climbing. And so there were all these really cool things that, um, that you were able to do as a commando that you always wished you could do, but now here's somebody telling you you can get paid for it as well. So even though the selection process, you know, the, the toughest part obviously is learning how to become part of the part of army that you're no longer a civilian, that there is a process of learning, you know, how to become a member of the defense force. And sometimes that can be the most challenging part. Um, outside of that, through the commando induction training, you know, you're learning how to do all of your basic skill sets in, in commandos and commandos is a, uh, an amphibious large scale rating uh, uh, unit that does over the horizon insertions via a fixed wing parachute load follow of amphibious watercraft. Uh, so there's a requirement for you to become a paratrooper. There's also a requirement for you to become a small craft handler and amphibious operator. Um, then there's obviously your patrolling skills and section and platoon tactics, infantry minor tactics and commando tactics. Uh, obviously, commandos have specialist other skills such as demolitions. You have um, uh, roping and rappelling and also rock climbing. And in addition to that, there's mountain warfare. So all of these different courses became available uh, to me. And it wasn't long before I wanted to streamline in ropes and climbing and mountain warfare. And that was the path that I ended up taking uh, through commandos to become a roping instructor a climbing instructor and a mountain warfare instructor. And what was that training like? What what are the what's the process for that? Yeah, so um, you know the way that the the army at the time uh, worked and and still works for the most part now is that once you once you go through the initial training course in a certain skill set, if you get recommended, if you're a high performer on that course, for example, you might get recommended to be employed in that skill set one. Uh, and two, you might get recommended to come back to become an instructor in that skill set. So there's always recommendations at the bottom of your course report. And uh, because I excelled and had, you know, a, a certainly, um, you know, a lot of desire to, to want to excel in that career path, 
um, you know, I was recommended at that point to come back to become a roping instructor. And the roping course teaches you basically how to uh, ascend and descend a vertical feature. So whether whether that's um, an, an urban an urban feature or a rural feature, a cliff head or a building, um, the, the competencies there is to be able to descend and ascend, essentially. And then outside of that, there's things like cliff edge cliff edge rescue. There's roller haulage. There's bipod haulage. Basically, you know, understanding a whole commando mission of being able to assault a beachhead and assault a vertical feature to gain access to then go and assault a structure somewhere else that that commando raiding platoon or company would also bring all of their equipment with them so you would have lead climbers to be able to establish um, fixed lines on uh, on a on a, an ascending point or a vertical feature um, and then the the follow-on force would then move in to be able to ascend that via caving ladders and fixed lines on Jumars. Um, and then under you know the, the safety side of it would be provided by the lead climbing elements. Uh, and then you would you'd be able to ascend or have the whole rating company ascend a, a vertical feature. And in addition to that, they'd have to bring their rucksacks up, they'd have to bring mortars, uh, you know, direct fire support weapons, belt-fed guns, all that kind of stuff up as well which then the requirement to have a roller haulage uh, or a bipod haulage method of getting that equipment up would have to be um, established and, and ran as well. And obviously packing all that up so that there's no evidence of what we've done there uh, at the same time. So those those types of skill sets, um, you know, that, that's what I would then instruct to students coming through the next course. Um, and then onto the next course would be climbing uh, and climbing instructor where you would have to, you know, teach lessons about moving over stone, uh, how to place natural pro or protection into natural rock. Uh, again, how to be able to ascend a vertical feature on a lead climb and then have a second uh, come up to remove the protection. And then there's standards and competencies that you need to pass, like minimum grade that an instructor needs to be able to climb. Um, and so those, and, and in addition to that as well, is night climbing under NVGs. So you've got to you've got to be able to lead a fairly basic climb at night, NVGs on, and be able to self protect on the way as well. And then bring your second up to to do a single pitch at night in full tactical equipment. That's part of the competency as well. Wow, that's just amazing. And, the, it's amazing. and the, mountain, the mountain warfare course is about uh, living and operating above the snow line. Now, in Australia, there's low alpine because our peaks are less than 10,000 feet. Um, so being sometimes in mixed uh, low alpine where it could be snow, it could be rainy and cold, but essentially trying to be above the snow line um, and then be able to live and fight and survive in that environment. Um, is about a six six week program um, where we learn uh, learn how to ski technical te uh, sorry technical skiing it used to be backcountry skiing on three pins um, where you know you would you would you would learn how to to traverse and, and ascend and descend um, on three pin skis but then we we transitioned out of that into uh, ski mountaineering um which you know just provides again just different options to be able to clip into your to your bindings better to be able to descend um you know without diagonal gating and you know traditional sort of skiing backcountry skiing so it was easier to teach and learn um you know with with some of those techniques and, and newer technologies obviously you still need skins to be able to you know bring heavy equipment up features and stuff like that and be able to, to move up hills but then, you know, when you're going downhills, you can actually clip into your bindings and you can traverse. You can still kick turn and all that kind of stuff, or you can snow plow or, you know, all, all of those kind of things. But those technical sides of skiing is something that, you know, you need to learn if you're not a real avid skier um, to, to then be able to carry, you know, a 60, 60 kilo rucksack in that environment on skis as well with your weapon, with your web gear and, and your rucksack, because, once you finish the first phase of that, which is learning how to ski, then you put your overlights on, put your web gear on, have your rifle, get your rucksack on, and then you're out living in the field for the next four weeks. Wow. And Jason, let me ask you this question. I'm sure a lot of people wash out of this. What, what was the most challenging part of the training for you? 
And what do you think, what characteristics do you think that you have that pushed you through that and what way that allowed you to get through that? Yeah, I think, I think in certainly a, a lot of those types of training programs, the exposure and fear of being an either at height. Um, you know, a lot of people don't like the, at being high up or being exposed or having that sort of feeling that things that you're doing might be unsafe or, you know, just that, that sort of fear of that side of it. But for me, being an avid climber prior, prior to joining the army, you know, I was well versed and well aware of, you know, how to do it and what was safe and what was not. The good thing about the army is that they do it even further, like even more safe. So everything's safer, everything's done, you know, the right way. And you're actually enhancing your skill set by going through those programs. Things like climbing, you know, the amount of exposure that you have on a multi-pitch climb, hanging out there on, on the face of a, you know, a really exposed climb or an arete where you're looking left and right and you can't really see any other rock and you're just like hanging it out there. Um, you might have ran your, ran your gear out just a little bit too. And people just find that a very, you know, I don't know, a, a very lonely place to be at sometimes and they can get scared and, and not want to be there. Um, even in the mountains, um, a lot of the times in mountain warfare, you know, if anyone's going to, you know, not, not complete the course, it, it oftentimes can be due to injury. Um, you know, roping, roping injuries, uh, and, and the roping program is the number one reason why, uh, in, why there's injuries or people get bent, broken or, or can't continue on these training programs or even can't even continue in the military and have to get medically discharged. Parachuting and roping accidents are the, the highest risk activities that you can do. So, you know, streamlining a path in that area, you know, it's high risk. So roping, climbing and mountain warfare whether it's glacial travel or, you know, uh, crevasse rescue and stuff like that. Obviously, it's a very dangerous place to be at. And further to that, you know, from my, um, you know, taking those, those training programs in the Army was not just isolated to Australia Low Alpine. I went to New Zealand to do the New Zealand SAS's Mountain Warfare course. Um, we did the Technical Mountaineering course, which was run by civilians in New Zealand. Again, peaks over 10,000 over there. And then over to Norway, where we worked with the SBS's uh, cadre and mountain leaders to do the uh, mountain and Arctic warfare cadre, which was uh, inside the Arctic Circle in Norway for uh, six weeks. And what was that experience like for you? Yeah, really, uh, really cold, <laughs> really cold. Everything up there is, you know, mostly um, using... Uh, skidoo or tracked mobility, obviously the distances that you need to traverse often go outside the range or capability of, of anything on foot. Um, the fact that it's, you know, frozen lake to frozen lake and, you know, the, the landscape is, is really quite uh, high, high risk in terms of how cold it is. You know, ambient temperatures well below freezing every day to a point where, you know, you have to have no exposed skin um, the wind chill, like when you're riding the, the skidoos through there, obviously the, the wind chill hitting your face will freeze your skin almost instantly. So no exposed skin. Um, you know, we took advantage of, of, uh, uh, you know, local animal pelts to put onto the skidoos. So you'd have, you know, reindeer skins on your, on your skidoos to sit on because it would warm you up more than the, uh, you know, than the material that it was made out of. Same as like, you know, get out hats, um, you know, all kinds of stuff uh, to try and increase, you know, your, your ability to stay warm. And those are the kind of things, you know, obviously it's a very dangerous place. Um, moving across frozen lakes is extremely dangerous or around the edges of, of frozen lakes rather than going straight across. But, um, you know, that, that, that experience over there is definitely, you know, working in the Arctic Circle just teaches you a lot about, you know, your, your own individual abilities to survive and continue in those environments. Um, and, and the biggest thing obviously is, you know, how to, how to be able to militarily operate in those environments as well. It's not just living and surviving. It's about being able to work in those environments too and getting the job done, whether it's hostage rescue in those environments or whether it's some kind of target prosecution where you're employing, you know, um, uh, direct fire support weapons and mortars or, you know, a, a raiding force going forward to, to take down a building. You know, you've got to be able to do the job at the same time. And Jason, let me ask you, I, what kind of what kind of things did you learn when you're going through this experience in terms of 
leadership and team building? Yeah, it's, it's always one of those things where you, you always have responsibilities, whether it's a navigational responsibility, whether it's an organization responsibility. Um, and so there's always leadership opportunities. You know, the way that the army works and uh, defense in a whole is that, you know, it really pushes you to become that junior leader. Uh, whether, and, and we always know that, you know, in order to navigate things like the fog of war, it's always going to be up to the junior leaders to make good decisions under stress and that intuitive decision making that allows you to, you know, be able to shoot, move and communicate under, under those types of stress loads. So there's always, you know, opportunities and, and the expectation is not even an opportunity, there's an expectation that you become a leader or a junior leader in order to improve the whole, you know, team mission and get you, get your team where it needs to go. Obviously the major task, the team leader is going to be doing all the tactical stuff. The second in command is going to be doing most of the administrative stuff and everyone else is going to be helping out trying to get everything done too. But you'll always be delegated tasks. There'll always be opportunities for you to step up into the breach and become that junior leader to, to assist in making sure that you know, the team gets to where it needs to go. And what were the qualifications when you, when you became special forces? I know, you know, when you look at, we've had Navy SEALs on here, we've had people from the, the military on here on previous podcasts. Was it, a, was it a difficult selection process? So when I went through commando training, um, the regular commando unit had not been formed yet. And it was several years later um, that 4RAR was selected to become or redesignated as a commando battalion. Um, and that's where I was first, uh, went on training courses up on the regular side, uh, to work and integrate with the, the regular, uh, commando uh, battalion up there in Holsworthy in Sydney. Um, so the training, the commando training induction course had been, a, 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 the way the commandos had selected their personnel for the longest time up until when they decided that four hour was going to become commando. And then they wanted to have a special forces training center to be able to uh, manage both regular elements of special forces in Australia. So Australia is different to the United States, certainly at the time where we only had army special forces or special operations. We didn't have the different branch special operations like the United States has being such a, a large military organization. So we did a lot of the heavy lifting that a lot of the other branches would do here in the United States. So we would have to do land-based um, assault. We'd have to do maritime assault. So we didn't have a, a SEAL platoon or, you know, SEAL Team 6 or Delta or Special Forces or Rangers or, or whatever. SAS and Commandos pretty much did everything. So there's a lot of skill sets there to maintain and a lot of work to be done. But uh, once the regular Commandos came online, and Special Forces Training Center came online, they also organized a commando selection course, which was similar to SAS selection, but more specific to commandos and what the, the role of commandos is. So when I transitioned out of commandos in 1999 and went to SAS selection, that was my first uh, go at a, a proper selection course at the what you would refer to as the tier one level, right? At the, the counter-terrorist team and, you know, SAS, you know, being the, the sort of, the highest level unit there is in the Australian army when it comes to special forces. So going through that three week process, you know, a lot of apprehension, a lot of people say they're going to do selection, but never do. Um, there's always the folks that know they're never going to make it yet. They go anyway, just to say they went. Um, and then there's going to be the folks that, you know, genuinely want to get in, but uh, may not have the aptitude or, or the physical conditioning or the endurance to get in. Um, sometimes they just don't jive with the other people on the course, you know, peer assessments, or they might have, you know, poor interaction with the cadre or something like that, which leads to the fact that they're not selected and you can even finish the course and not be selected as well. Wow. And the intent would be that you would finish the course. Uh, and if, if you weren't selected, you could come back the next year for another go at it. But if you withdraw from a course like that at your own re request, then you wouldn't be able to come back for another go. You can be medically taken off of the course and then come back the next year for another go, but you can't withdraw at your own request. So it really is, you know, um, you know, it certainly behoves individual when they go to courses like that, that they adequately prepare uh, and they know what they're getting themselves in, getting themselves in for. Um, and so for me, when I went through that course, you know, again, I was really fit, um, 
had a pretty low body body fat percentage rate at the time, uh, and I was training really hard to get there. So I didn't have any issues with my feet, which is something that's that's always something that you know that, that people struggle with and can often lead to you being removed from a course like that. That you have you know blisters or or skin that's just peeling off your feet for the the amount of kilometers that you clip that you clock up under heavy rucksack. If your footwear, if your foot feet aren't prepared, if your footwear or footwear is not correct, your socks aren't right, you know, whatever it is, is just going to lead to that point of frustration where, you know, mentally you can then want to quit. So I think that, you know, growing up in team-based sports like football, where there was always a drive to win, you weren't just playing the game, you wanted to win every single time. And when you lost, you really felt like that loss was personal. You know, the whole team was lost that you don't want to lose again and losing sucks. Um, and that everything that you're geared towards playing sports like that is to win. There's only winning and there's nothing else. And that, that kind of mindset, I think, you know, when you, when you take that mindset into something like a selection course, you realize that, Hey, I don't give up. So that, that understanding of, you know, um, you know, tenacity and perseverance is, is already being developed through those high level team based sports. Uh, I think that that leads to a really positive outcome with things like selection because you know half of half of the hard work is right here in your heart and the other half is right there inside your head so it's mental you know and you've just got to keep going there's a you never quit you never stop you never give up you know you've always got a positive attitude there's always a joke to be shared to keep morale high um, and that's you know that's the attitude that you have to have but when, yeah, you, yeah. when you don't have that, it's easy to mentally start to decline. And then sure enough, you feel like, you know what? This would be a lot easier if I just gave up. This would be a lot easier if I was just back home sitting on the couch. And yeah, uh, you yeah. just can't allow that to creep into your head. Yeah, it seems like well, everyone I speak to about this issue um, says the same thing. About the, the physical part is almost the easy part. It's the, it's the mental part. And I think you brought that up again. And um, so what kind of things do you do to, I guess, build that resist, resilience mentally? Like when you're in a very difficult situation, when you were out there, how did you get through it? Yeah, I think, um, I think from the, the mental toughness side, you know, it, it really does start with, you know, just understanding that hard training is normal. And really hard training is, is where it needs to be. You just can't skate by with being adequate. It's got to be hard training. And so everything that I did in, pre in preparation for selection was the hardest training that I could possibly do. Um, and, and, you know, selection courses are always designed to prepare you for the rigors of, of war um, and how difficult war can be. But honestly, the selection, there's aspects, that's aspects of that selection course that doesn't compare to anything like well, it's it's so hard that that you're just like how is this even possible and a lot of the times it's not possible but you've just got to make it seem like it is um and that you've got to come up with a solution and so i think i think your ability to i think mentally problem solve and 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 have a have a i think just a you know certainly a a, a solid ability to be able to come up with solutions under stress. Some people shut down when they're under stress and they can't come up with a solution. And I think that, um, again, I, I sort of harp back on team level sports where even though you're completely fatigued, you feel like you've got nothing else to give, you know the strategy of what the team needs to do, the team plays, the where you're supposed to be. You just pick yourself up, you get to where you're supposed to go, you get the ball and you go and try and kick a goal. And um, I feel like, you know, that's, that's that attitude that you have to have mentally that you know that if, if you quit because you're tired or you're fatigued, 10 minutes later, you're going to be okay again. It's only going to take 10 minutes to recover. But if you quit 10 minutes later, you're going to regret it. And you know that, that, that it's not going to last forever. There's always that light at the end of the tunnel as well. And you always work to the next little goal, the next little goal. This will be over in two hours and then we'll get a rest. You might get a rest, you might not, but then you're going to say, if you don't get a rest, I'll oh, be just a little further and then we're going to get that rest. They can't keep doing this forever, you know, and then you're going to work to the next goal. So having those little wins, little battles is, is always good, you know, um, and th they're all mental battles. 
So you're always like, you know that there's an activity followed by an activity followed by an activity. And if you're really smart, you would know that there's high intensity uh, periods and there's low intensity periods that it can't be all high intensity because of the risk of potentially hurting someone. So you know there's going to be high, then low, then high, then low, or high, high, low, high, and so on. And so you know that there's going to be a rest or a time for rest or recovery um, you know, soon enough. So mentally, I think in preparation, you've got to have that understanding that it's those little little battles that you've got to fight along the way, that you have those little wins, that that's really important as well. And when was when were you first contacted that you had to go into combat? I know you've been into Afghanistan and Iraq. And what did those situations teach you? Yeah, so my first operation is actually a low-level uh, peace or a peace monitoring um, operation in New Guinea, in the island of Bougainville. That's when I was a commando. Uh, so I think it was really important initially to deploy on a low-level uh, conflict like that because it teaches you how to interoperate also with other units that you might not necessarily be used to operating in. It gives you that operational understanding that, you know, you are there on mission um, and that's different to, to being back home training. So I think just generally understanding, you know, what it's like to be deployed in a foreign country uh, for a four month period is really important to get that under your belt. Um, you know, and and the Australian, the Australian Army as a whole post Vietnam had not seen a lot of deployments. You know, it's not like the American war machine where, you know, every 10 years there's something going on that we're deploying our forces for. Uh, since Vietnam, you know, Australia had been engaged in really low-level conflicts and, you know, and some other things like, you know, um, uh, Somalia, we, we deployed guys to uh, Rwanda. Um, and then, you know, f from there through to, you know, the, the 90s, there was you know, the Gulf War, um, the initial Gulf War, we supplied, you know, combat search and rescue personnel and stuff like that, but it was never like a major engagement um, up until 1999. So when I deployed on that first four-month uh, low-level conflict in uh, Bougainville, excuse me, that was uh, in 98, I want to say, um, and that that's what actually, and I, and I was actually working with uh, a fellow from SAS at the time, and his work ethic, his fitness level, his intelligence level, everything about what he did as a soldier made me want to do the same thing. I said, I want to be like that guy. We would compete against each other physically every morning. We'd do PT and he'd always beat me by a small margin. Like he, you're just like, hold on, that's next level. That's where I want to go. So when I got back off that operation, um, I said to my, uh, uh, company Sergeant Major, I said, I want to put in for SAS selection. And, and he was um, a warrant officer from SAS on an external posting to the commando unit. And uh, he recommended me uh, to go on selection. So he, we did all we did all the uh, the pre-screening tests and everything else and, you know, all the paperwork and then I put in for selection. So I ended up going out over on in 99. Now, after selection and through the reinforcement cycle, which typically takes about a year to become qualified at SAS and receive your beret and, and then march into your squadron, um, East Timor had kicked off. And East Timor was, you know, a, a major conflict for Australia to deploy uh, both special operations and conventional forces to be able to um, control what was going on in, in East Timor against the West Timorese mil uh, militia and anything that was being, um, you know, pushed down from Indonesia on that western side to prevent East Timor from becoming its own state and, and being independent. Um, and so special operations went in there to, to do classic special operations work of, um, you know, seizing uh, uh, air, airheads, uh, doing rotary wing insertions into villages to, you know, uh, uh, to clean up any, any militia and stuff like that. And these were three to four month deployments over there. One of the squadrons rotated in first, they rotated back out and I got to uh, one squadron at a time and then rotated straight in after just completing the reinforcement cycle um, I rotated on my first operation, which was offensive by nature, um, and then doing you know clandestine patrols along the, the east-west Timor border, uh, and then you know all the other tasking that we needed to do for a four-month period. So 
It was really high up operational tempo work. Um, it was really hard, arduous work as well. Like the, the jungles over there in East Timor are not very forgiving. Um, the, the, the terrain is, is thick with primary, secondary jungle. There's mountains. I mean, it's, there's areas of exposed land. So from the planning and execution side of uh, strategic reconnaissance, it made it very challenging. You know, we, we'd insert by rotary wing, um, we'd air land, uh, and sometimes, you know, if we had to uh, get a, an air, sorry, a rope, a rope in or a, a suspended extraction coming out, those were the the, uh, the options available to us that we, you know, we may have needed to use. Um, sometimes, you know, insertion extraction methods that we, we had on the table that hadn't been used since Vietnam, we had to use in East Timor and and plan for. Um, so East Timor was a really interesting place because if you're there in the dry season, it never rains. And if you're there in the wet season, it always rains. And so it's almost like two different countries, depending on what time of the year you're there. And certainly from your equipment load out, if you're there in the dry season, well, you don't need a bivy bag because it never rains, but you also need 10 liters of water because there's no water around to refill your water bottles. So now you've got the extra load of 10, 10 kilos extra in your rucksack of carrying 10 liters of water, uh, which also reduces your duration out in the field because of food and water as well. So during the wet season, um, you can collect water, you know, from, from the field off your, off your, uh, off your hooch, all that kind of stuff and, um, refill your water bottles at will during the wet season. But, you know, the wet season is really rough. There's torrential flooding. Um, it makes it difficult to get around. Trench foot is always a problem, uh, also. So just, just keeping your, your cleanliness and hygiene up in the wet season too is, is quite difficult. You know, you, so you're always battling, you know, different things. So I spent uh, eight months in East Timor uh, as a whole, uh, one, one, one rotation in the wet and in the dry. Um, and that kind of set, set me up for, you know, how, how SAS operates. You know, this is classic SAS patrolling and, and what SAS was, was built to do. Um, and then it wasn't long after that that, I went on to the counterterrorism cycle when I got back and spent about a year conducting domestic counterterrorism uh, and protecting, you know, domestically Australia's national interests as part of the national counterterrorist team, uh, which is operational service essentially, um, you know, being being as, as part of the CT team at the highest level there as part of the national counterterrorist response. So after after that, it's almost like you know, hey. Once, once I got to the unit, the operational tempo like accelerated out of control. I want to say the six years that I was there, I was deployed for three and the rest of the, the other three years I was away training. It was really, a really, um, an interesting time, uh, which is why, you know, you know, in that unit, the divorce rate is really high. It's, it's a, it's a tough place to be at because you're away, you know, much similar to some of the, the similar units over here that, that have, you know, similar mission sets. Um, but yeah, it wasn't long after that, uh, you know, um, Afghanistan kicked off the war on terror and we were the first squadron to go over into Afghanistan. And I was on the ground in Afghanistan, I think it was either October or November of 2001. So not that long after, you know, the, the, uh, the planes flew into the, the Twin Towers and, um, and we were, you know, on the ground the same year, October, November timeframe. Um, when we rotated out, another squadron rotated in, um, and that sort of continued for a while. And then it wasn't long after that, that Iraq kicked off in 03 and we just found ourselves lined up for the, um, the first push into Iraq as well. So one squadron, my squadron was the first ones across the border. Um, and I want to say we were also the first coalition, um, to be able to, to get into contact over there as well. You know, we, we were the first in contact and um, which was an interesting time, you know, like Iraq was, was special unto itself, you know. Um, I think, I think the, the mission that we were, that we were doing over there, I think the gravity, I think everyone sort of knew that it was, it, it was special. It was very different to say Afghanistan. Um, 
And, you know, I guess I think some of the, the, the enemy, the fact that the Iraq military was far better equipped and better trained than, you know, what we were dealing with in Afghanistan, a very different enemy. Uh, one was more of a militia, uh, and this one's more of a, an organized, you know, state essentially. So yeah, those were, those were interesting times. And then, um, you know, the next couple of years I was away on different, uh, different jobs. There was a few other operations that took me out to South Africa, um, to do a ship, a ship underway rest, a rescue, um, or a recovery of, of a ship. Um, we're out in uh, the Solomon Islands, uh, to do uh, potential evacuation operations of Australian nationals out there. So there's a few, a few other, other things going on outside of the other overseas jobs that we were doing, which here you would call them a, a joint combined exchange, exchange training opportunity or a JSET, I want to say it is over here. We have similar engagements in our region. So over in Thailand, working with the Thai Special Forces, uh, Malaysia with Malaysian Special Forces, the uh, Papua New Guinea Defence Force training those guys. Um, like I said, I was over in uh, the UK and in Norway. Uh, Jason, you, you've done so much. I, 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 and you were young at the time. You were just, I mean, you've travelled all over the world. So let me ask you this question. Yeah. Um, what did you see? And I think this is a very interesting question, like culturally, what was the difference between like the Australian, because you worked with probably militaries all over the world. Was it much different for you working with like the Americans versus let's say the British or, or um, you said you were in Thailand? What was that difference like? And what about in terms of leadership as well? Yeah, you know, each each different military has its own um, structure to it, and then also how they operate sometimes can be very cultural. Uh, we often find that in you know the Asian nations, um, you know, they have a different work ethic than what we're used to, um, and you know where we might find them not as uh, sometimes not as fit, or sometimes maybe not as um, you know, capable from the training side, you know, and part of our job also in those types of engagements is to upskill them um, in some of the, the skill sets that we're there to train them in. But we, we also are there to try and motivate them too to be, you know, more like us. I think, I think in Australia, our work ethic is really high. Our standards are really high. Um, and we see that as like a defining sort of characteristic, I think, of, of what we do, that we maintain a very high level of professionalism with what we do. Um, and, and we see that sometimes as weaknesses in other militaries um, and certainly differences. So, you know, Australia also is very good at, um, even though we're kind of humble for the most part, like a humble nation, one thing that we're really good at is, is generally winning the hearts and minds of folks uh, that we work with, whether it's, you know, through training or operations, you know, even um, some of the stuff that we did in East Timor, which was for hearts and minds, was to set up medical clinics, as, you know, and I was a medic attached to a medical clinic, setting up a remote clinic somewhere, treating, you know, locals that are, that are dying or, or would die without any kind of medical treatment, whether it's malaria, um, you know, there was, there was so many different uh, eye infections, tropical ulcers. You know, you're dealing with so many different things that, um, you know, that we can, we can help people. And I think Australians are generally very helpful people too. Um, and again, that's what leads to our ability to, to win the hearts and mind, win over the people. Um, and, and that definitely helps, I think, accelerate Australia's mission. So let me ask you this. Uh, we only have like 10, 10 minutes more. Um... I, I could probably do a uh, 10 podcasts with you. Um, uh, so here's a question I got for you. How did you come to the United States, Jason? What brought you here? Because uh, I've heard amazing things about Australians. And I have to say, there's one comment you meant about winning the hearts and minds. I've never met an Australian that I haven't really liked. They're always very friendly and kind. And so you, you, you definitely keep that tradition. We always like to say that, you know, wherever we go, we're ambassadors for the country. Um, and so, you know, you always got to sort of look at it from that mindset. Um, and, you know, Australians generally, certainly, you know, guys in the military, we're, we're pretty, um, pretty easy going. A lot of, you know, we're, we, we don't mind having a good time, having a beer, having a yarn, you know, having a good time. So it was, you know, it was interesting when I left Australia for America, 
Um, my mum said to me at a young age, she said, you're probably going to go live in somewhere like America when you're older. And, and sure enough, it happened. Um, you know, my reasons for coming over here, uh, I think were pretty selfish at the time. You know, I was single. I wanted to, to come over and experience, you know, you know what, what America had to offer. Um, I'd heard such good things, you know, about, you know, the way of life and things that you can do in America that you can't do in Australia. And I think it provided me opportunity also to be able to use the skill sets that I had in, in, a, in a really interesting way, to think, in a way that I'd never be able to, to utilise those in Australia due to limitations with regards to things like gun ownership um, and access to weapons and stuff like that. So, you know, as I came through the US uh, immigration system, you know, that really gives you a good understanding of American culture um, through, the, you know, the War of Independence, through the Civil War and through to today you know, how America grew up and, you know, where we're given our God-given rights here, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness and, you know, First Amendment protections and Second Amendment protections here are things that you just don't get in a country like Australia. So understanding those and how they apply and how, you know, you should use those things, you know, as, as, a, as a good citizen of the United States. Now, I became a citizen in 2015. And, um, and, you know, at that stage, I was a foreign national living and working here and I was training U.S. special operations personnel essentially at that point to deploy overseas to fight the wars. Now, I was doing that whilst I was working at Blackwater at the time for a five-year period. And then we started our own company, Redback One, in 2010 to offer what I believe is a higher level of, of training uh, and also to be able to run our own curriculum in a similar space. But... Coming to America and, and understanding, you know, the freedoms and the choices that you have here is really important. And I think everybody that's an immigrant to this country um, can, can, can recognize that and should recognize it and feel, you know, how lucky you are coming here, regardless of how, you know, politically divided the country is currently with, you know, the, the Democrat and Republican side, you know, progressive, you know, um, conservative sides and stuff like that, you know, coming from Australia where, you believe that the government provides you with your rights and yet over here it's like these are god-given rights to you over here that the government doesn't give you those rights god gave you those rights here and so understanding how then we should need to protect those rights too so it's really important to as an immigrant to understand that and understand how we need to protect um, those rights of everybody as well I'm sure enough, some people might not feel like they're important to them, but it's important to us and it's important for us to, to probably protect those people at some point too. Um, so that's, that's a really, you know, when, when I came over here, I had the understanding that I wanted to be in a similar field to what I was working with in the army and, and be helpful and give back. And that's, that's why I do what I do. I love teaching. I love training people. I love passing on that knowledge and skills to, to other, other individuals that are, you know, in the position to be able to go and utilize them to better protect themselves, their teammates, and ultimately America. Well, let me ask you this one. These are these are going to be easier questions. So maybe one bit more difficult uh, that I might throw in there for you. What is your guilty food pleasure? <laughs> pizza. <laughs> so, so you love pizza. And then, and then what, pizza. what is, what do you miss most about Australia? Uh, I think I think good food and oftentimes the laid back nature of the way people are. I think in America sometimes everything's too fast paced. No one's got time for anything. It's always go time here, which I love. I love go time, but I also like chill out and relax time too. And we find that I think in Australia we do that really well. So what do you do? Like, how, So any tips on... on uh, for any of us that I, uh, that need to learn how to relax a little bit, because I, I definitely find myself in that. On your next vacation, go to Australia and hang out with the locals. You'll figure it out there. <laughs> because yeah. now that I've converted over here, I'm in go time almost 100% of the time. It's hard to relax here. I know. It was hard for me to get you on here, too. That's yeah, why I'm so happy really you're on here. Um, so, oh, what are your future goals? So I think, uh, you know, certainly on the, the business side, future goals is to expand Redback One into, um, you know, something that incorporates, I think, more of a, um, you know, certainly more instructor, instructor cadres, more course offerings, but also a more permanent facility to, I think, minimize some of the travel that I do. Um, so that would be, I think, like business goals. 
And then, you know, certainly personal goals is to self-improve, to become a better trainer, better instructor, um, you know, better teacher, but also from the family side, how to become a better dad and how to become a better husband. Oh, I love that. So what, what is the best thing that, what do you love most about being a dad? Well, I, I mean, I'll tell you what, I, I love my kids to death. Um, I love the interactions that I have with them. I love the fact that I can teach and educate the kids into things, but, and, it, and it's taken me a while to get, you know, to a point, you know, as they're starting to grow up. Uh, and it's tough, you know, when I'm on the road a lot to, to, to have those meaningful moments with them. Uh, and those are the things that I miss. And so I've really started to recognize more recently that I need to cherish those moments more being with the kids and really trying to, and it's hard to make up for that lost time, but just make sure that every moment that I spend with them is memorable. And what would the older self tell the younger self in terms of advice, if you could go back in time? Uh, I would say that you catch more flies with honey than you do vinegar. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Not be so abrasive. I think, um, I think be more, more friendly. Uh, to be able to establish a, a wider network of friends and individuals. You know, I think sometimes when you're young, you you get into that, you know, I'm six foot tall and bulletproof kind of mindset uh, and I can't learn anything from anybody else. And I feel like, you know, through through uh, growing up and the wisdom that you get, you know, you often, you often you get a lot of that wisdom from mentors and other people that you interact with. And so I think I've been able to, understand that better being a civilian than I was in the army that, you know, be nicer to people, you know, develop friendships, develop relationships. You know, it's not just about taking, it's about giving as well. So making sure that, you know, there's, there's always a give and a take, you know, it's not just a, a take. Yeah. And I can tell you that you practice what you preach because, uh, I actually, when I met you a couple of years ago, um, I interacted with you for some business purposes and you spent like about 45 minutes on the phone with me just talking about life. So um, that's what I really, really appreciate about you. And what's your favorite place to vacation? Wait, you spoke, there's a, there's a thing called a vacation. <laughs> if you have one, that's what I'm asking. Where would you go? What's your favorite place? I, mean, I thought it was just sitting on the couch. That was <laughs> That might be a vacation for you. Yeah. You know, it's tough being a business owner and, and running a really dynamic small business that vacations are really tough. So I was able to take the kids uh, and the family on a couple of key vacations. One was actually to San Antonio, uh, which was a work trip slash holiday. Um, but I was able, you know, we took the kids to the water park and, you know, they, they still talk about the trip we took to San Antonio, just getting out of Virginia, getting out to a different state, you know, we took the kids uh, several years ago to, to Disney when, um, you know, it was one of those things that I think you should, you know, should be able to do um, is get the kids away to, to places that they enjoy. So and then, and here's your last question. It's one of the most difficult. What do you want to be remembered for in your life when you're no longer here? Yeah, it's good. You know, everyone wants to leave a legacy. Um, and I feel like, you know, the legacy I'd like to leave mostly with, with Redback One and what I do is that, you know, one, one, I want to be remembered for being a good bloke, that I think I'm helpful and I feel like I'm generous with, with things too. Um, you know, and the legacy is that I, I guess I'd like to be remembered for, I think, the level of professionalism in training that we deliver. Um, and also, you know, I really want to be the good dad. I feel like, you know, I've been waning on that side a little bit, like being away. So I really want to be a good dad, good husband. But from the business side, I want to be, I think, remembered as, as being a really professional instructor. Well, I have to tell you, thank you so, so much for being here. I want to thank my producer, who's usually here, uh, Brian Garcia, but he's not here today. We miss you. And Jason, you know what? Um, give me any plugs. How can anybody get in contact with you if they want to train with you or get a hold of you? What's the best way to do that? Sure. Now, you know, we run uh, military, law enforcement and civilian training, um, whether it's combat shooting, whether it's home defense, whether it's close quarters battle or night vision operations or vehicle tactics. You know, these are our mainstay training programs. We offer them on our website at redback1.com. 
We're on social media, Instagram. We have a Twitter account. Uh, Facebook, again, Redback1 is our handle on all of our social media. So please, you know, feel free to jump on our webpage. And if there's something that we can offer you in terms of training, whether it's a law enforcement agency or a military unit, or even if you wanted to set up a local private course uh, at your local range, you know, we always are willing to you know, discuss how we can get that done. So redback1.com. Well, thank you so much for being here. I, uh, please, please, I would love to have you back on again, Jason. You've just been a wonderful guest. And uh, join us for our next podcast with our, another great guest like Jason. And have a wonderful, wonderful day, everybody. Keep learning. And Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Stay safe. Take care, my friend. Thanks.